the Bible. Thanks for the setup, Leslie. Blessings to you. You know, our place of residence today is going to be in the book of James, and we'll be looking at the last part of chapter 1. So I invite you to turn to that and follow along as I read, and would you please stand for the reading of the word. And beginning in verse 19... James says this, This you know, my beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he, immediately, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is God's word. Amen. 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 Thank you. Please be seated. Uh, Good to see all of you today. And I was at the retreat as well and um, uh, enjoyed it very, very much and continue to learn more and more about our assembly here. You know, in his first letter, Peter says that Christians are partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean that we become God. It simply means that God lives within us and his character bleeds through. And that makes us more interested in people, more generous with money, uh, more likely to admit a wrong than we would otherwise be. And life becomes a spiritual enterprise. On the other hand, the changes aren't as radical as they could be. There's not the courage there could be, not the generosity there could be, not the authenticity there could be, not the humility that there could be. So in light of this, let me give you a two-sided exhortation. Don't give yourself a bad rap. Uh, You're better than you used to be. On the other side, don't become complacent because you're not yet now where you will be. And so today we want to look at the importance of incremental growth, just continuing to march along for the glory of God. And the tools that the Spirit of God is, uses in order to give us the ability to grow would be worship and community and friendship and service, which are all part of the church here. Uh, But it all is anchored in the word. And so today we want to just look at uh, 
what James says, the focus on the Word of God and how it all applies to our life. And he begins with a general principle, and I'll read it again. This you say, my beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And we need to mark the context here because James is talking about the Word. That means let everyone be quick to hear the Word, uh, slow to uh, speak the Word, and slow to become angry with the word. Now, when it says slow to, or quick to hear the word, it simply means putting yourself in the role of a student and seizing the opportunity to learn. When it says be slow to speak the word, it means praying for the gift of silence. We kind of have a built-in audio-visual in our own bodies. We have two ears and only one mouth. You can imagine the chaos that it would be after church today if we had two mouths and one ear. Uh, if you've ever asked, or ever been asked, I should say, to give a testimony, you probably prayed for the gift of speech. Uh, the other side of the question is, have you ever prayed for the gift of silence? Because in reality, that's the greater gift, uh, the more difficult one to develop. And then third, it says, be slow to get angry with the word. What it's really saying here is, you know, slow down. It's a a call for restraint against hasty hasty reactions to the message of Scripture. In other words, allow time for a fuller apprehension, more thoughtful evaluation. I keep coming back to Tolkien, but I I guess I'll continue to do it as long as you listen to it. But... uh, You know, in Tolkien's trilogy, there was a ring of power created by a dark lord. And anybody who used the ring for selfish purposes fell under the spell of the dark lord. You see Luke Skywalker in in Star Wars, and he was in danger of giving in to his anger and thus falling under the control of the evil empire. And so there's this uh, common theme uh, in fantasy. And uh, that is the more angry we become, the less control we have, and the more in bondage evil we become. And so James' exhortation to be slow to anger is so significant that he tells us why. Verse 20, for the anger of a man or a woman does not achieve the righteousness of God. So that's the general principle. Now we move on to some of the specifics in verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. You see, before we come to the word, we have a responsibility to remove that which would keep the word from finding lodgment in our lives. You know, fling filthiness, fling wickedness from your own life as you would a worn out garment. You think, well, Gary, those words don't really apply to me. I I may not have my total act together in the Christian life, and I certainly don't, but I'm neither filthy nor wicked, at least as I understand it. Yet we can't escape it that easily because the Greek word for filthy just simply means common dirt. And the Greek word for wickedness is just to be internally corrupt. And we all qualify. We all have something in common here today when we walked in here. Uh, We're filthy, we're wicked by the Bible's definition of that. So we all have work to do. The Spirit of God's got to work in us incrementally and continue to help us grow. 
You know, when our, our, just with the filthy, wicked thought here, you know, when our kids were small, we had, we had four sons. Uh, and when they were like two, four, six, and eight, uh, uh, they loved playing outside, loved the G.I. Joe stuff. And we had a combination of a sand pit, mud pit on our side yard there. And they'd pull out the hose and fill everything up with water and they had stuff going all over the place, and invariably, probably one of the younger ones gets hurt, and he starts to cry and wail. And all of a sudden, he, start, you know, he really realizes that the place for comfort is mom's lap. And so uh, Suzanne sees this little mud ball coming toward her with arms flailing, and she, she gives him a true NFL stiff arm. <laughs> And he's trying to grasp. <clears throat> and, you know, he needed to learn the most axiomatic of mother-son principles, and that is communion is preceded by cleansing in order, <laughs> in order to have that kind of a thing. And so uh, <clears throat> confession and... Re- there's a spiritual analogy here, you know, that confession and repentance is really a prerequisite. Uh, for deep communion with the Lord. We can't come to the table of the Lord uh, with dirty hands and expect to enjoy the meal. So it's just a time of preparation. Before we hear the God, we have a responsibility. Uh, Hear the word of God, we have a responsibility to remove that which would keep the word from finding lodgment. The second specific is receive. Uh, we have a responsibility during our time in the Word, and uh, that is to receive in humility the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, here a couple of months ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving at Harvest, and uh, it's kind of a, a great Sunday for me. I'd never experienced what you yearly experienced, but, you know, the sides were opened up, and everybody sat around tables, and I uh, cut my message uh, short that day, and then Fidel led a wonderful time of sharing as individuals just stopped uh, and stood up and expressed times of thanksgiving and so forth. And then we had lunch together, and uh, Sunday before Thanksgiving, and there's this marvelous buffet line over there. And everybody was going through it, and I went through it, and it's very easy when you... Um, have a buffet line to get two or three times as much food as you can eat and seldom get a balanced diet meal there. And the reason is, is because we pick and choose in terms of what we want more than in terms of what we need. Uh, You ever do that with the Bible? You see, we often struggle uh, with the game of ecclesiastical basketball. Now, ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church, and so, uh, you know, the Spirit of God takes a principle, a life-changing principle, uh, from the Word of God and passes the ball to you. And you receive the ball, and you say, my goodness, uh, Aristarchus, Brother Aristarchus needs this more than ever, and you pass the ball. And then another life-changing principle comes your way, and you look at this and say, man, this, I hope Dorcas is here today, because this one's got her name all over it. And the problem is, is that we're tempted to never take any shots ourselves. 
And uh, James says, hey, listen, you humbly receive the implanted word. You see, if we, if we don't receive, if we re- let me put it this way, if we receive only the parts of the Bible that we like, then how can God ever cross our wills? How can he contradict us? How can he upset us? Uh, he can't. You see, if God can't do that, then we really don't have a relationship with him. Uh, my wife, Suzanne, doesn't always agree with me. You're probably surprised to hear that. Um, but, uh, you know, she doesn't always agree with me. She has her own thoughts, her own ways of going. But at least we have a real relationship. You know, she's not a Stepford wife that just simply blinks her eyelashes and says, yes, dear. Uh, James says, hey, listen, if we can't have a God that never crosses our will, then we have a Stepford God. In other words, we're, we're, we're not, we don't have an organic relationship with the living God. Now, notice at the end of verse 21, James says that the word is able to save your souls. Now, there's two number of different ways in which you can take the word salvation and define it. Uh, Sometimes salvation in the Bible means salvation from damnation, and they already had that. But at other times, salvation refers to being free from the damages of sin, and certainly it's used in that way, and they needed that. Uh, and so we're to, to remove from the destructive consequences of sin. So we're to remove that which would keep the word from finding lodgment. We're to receive the implanted word, which is able to safeguard us from the destructive consequences of sin. And then finally, we're to reproduce in verse 22. We're to take what we receive. He says, but prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. In other words, your spirit-directed mind is to come up with a plan of action that will allow you to reflect the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what James does is he goes on and illustrates it in verses 23 to 25. He says in verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, let him, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Let me update this a little bit. Pick on the men. Let's say, men, that uh, early in the morning you pile out of bed, and the first thing you do is you go to the bathroom. And when you get to the bathroom, you look into the mirror, and you say, man, do I ever need to shave? and comb my remaining hair. And then you walk away from the mirror and do nothing about that which you've seen. And you make your way to work. Uh, High-end job. You know, a lot of uh, very wealthy clients. And you begin to sit down at your desk and go to work. Then all of a sudden, the managing partner comes by stops dead in his tracks and looks at you. And he says, do you have a mirror in your house? 
Sure do. Looked at it the last thing before I left this morning. Uh, do you have any razor blades? Yep, just bought a fresh bundle down at the Cutthroat Drugstore. Do you have a comb? Right here. And then he leans over and says, listen, the next time you look into the mirror, you had better do something about that which you see. And that's exactly what, uh, what James is talking about here. Uh, the key to moving from a hearer of the word to a doer of the word is really to delight in the word. You know, we looked at Psalm 1 a few months ago, and it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law he meditates day and night, and as a result of that he will become like a tree planted by rivers of living water, bearing fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. In other words, the Bible is not just information. It's a constant, unremitting stream of living water. And you sink your roots deeply into the God of the Scriptures, and his will will become the plumb line for all of our decisions. You see, without the anchor... Of biblical conviction, Psalm 1 says we're like tumbleweed. We're just going to be blowing wherever the inclinations lead us. <clears throat> the proper attitude is found in verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. It... Uh, basically talks about the individual that gazes into the scriptures, looks intently at it, discovers how they relate to life itself, and then says, by the grace of God, there's going to be some changes in me. What uh, he does in the last part of our passage today is he applies it. Verse 26. He says, if you're welcoming your word, it will affect in three different ways of your life. And the first way is how I talk. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. You know, one of the questions that uh, people often have, uh, believers, Christians often have, is how do I know for sure that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that question is really not all that complicated. Uh, there are some, a number of identifiable marks in your life and in my life of the Spirit's work. But the older I get, uh, the more I sincerely believe that the high watermark of being filled with the Spirit of God is how we talk. And it's not just what we say, it's how we say what we say. And we do more injury to our fellow companions, to the people we love, to our spouse, to our children, to our friends, by the negative words that we communicate and the harshness of our tones. Uh, Satan has no more powerful weapon to fracture the body of Christ than our misuse of words, what we say to one another. 
Second way we know that we're welcoming the word is by what I do. James puts it this way. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. And that would be to visit the orphans and widows in their distress. Uh, The key to understanding this verse is to understand the meaning of the word visit. Uh, We use the word visit in a real innocuous way. I'm going over to Joe's house and pay him a visit. Uh, And we would define it as a social call. But the word visit here is a very specific term. And when it talks about visiting orphans and widows in their distress, he's not talking about a social call. He's talking about a service call. You say, well, why does he talk about orphans and widows? And the reason is, is because these are two groups of people that can never return to us what we give to them. And that's what James has in mind there. It's the kind of giving Jesus has in mind when he says it's more blessed to give than receive. He said that. You know, early on, I, I thought social action was a really good thing, uh, but not absolutely necessary. And I've come to the conclusion that I've been wrong on that. Uh, there are two kinds of moralists today. There are social moralists whose... Uh, personal lives might be secular, but whose social life and generosity to those who have need is very sacred. Then, of course, there are personal moralists who are upright individually, but somewhat indifferent socially. And so we ask the question, well, who's right, who's wrong? Where does God stand on all of this? And I honestly believe that neither one by themselves really grasp the glory of the gospel. You see, when the gospel takes root in an individual's life, in a heart, it creates both a personal and a social morality. You know, in Orange County, just living where we happen to live, the temptation is always to look up to the person that's a couple of rungs ahead of us on the economic ladder. We scratch our heads a little bit and say, well, how can can I... Take a vacation like that, live in a home like that, to drive a car like that. And in reality, that's the wrong mindset that God wants us to have. We also need to enter into the world of those who are less fortunate than ourselves. That's what James is saying. You know, during the time that Christianity was really spreading there in the first century, the Roman, Empire, uh, Roman emperor was a man named Julian. And Christianity was spreading, and he thought, well, I'm going to revive paganism. And so he spruced up the temples. He made them more, if you please, culturally relevant. But the problem is nobody went to them. They went to the churches instead. And he got so frustrated by all of that that he contacted a pagan priest. And he says, why is it that nobody's coming to our temples but they're all going to church. And the pagan priest responded, Christianity is popular because Christians not only take care of their own, but they also take care of our own. In other words, if you were to ask Julian what gave Christianity its real power, he wouldn't say our, our worship. He wouldn't say our community. He wouldn't say 
anything else, he would say the thing that really makes Christianity unique is the generosity of Christians. See, the Jews take care of Jews, the Greeks take care of the Greeks, the Romans take care of the Romans. That was all happening there. But the Christians, they took care of everybody. Indiscriminate. A third way of welcoming the word, uh, not just uh, what I say and what I do, but it could be defined by who I am. At the end of verse 27, James says, keep yourself unstained from the world. In other words, don't Embrace the lifestyle of individuals that have nothing to live for but this world. That's what he's saying. You know, there was a a man named Vance Packard a number of years ago. In fact, a number of decades ago. He was a sociological writer. And he said this about the American male. The average American male today in the United States changes wives every seven years, cars every three years, and friends every four months. And then he went on to describe uh, the problem of change and discuss that. But in the Church of Jesus Christ, there might be something that's even worse, and that would be the lack of change that happens in the body of Christ, in the lives of many people. And what James is saying, he just says, hey, we don't want to be involved in a rutted life. And so he leaves us this obsession, let's be a doer of the word. And it's easy for me and perhaps easy for you and say, you know, I'd like to be a doer of the word. I'd like to be able to control my tongue a little bit more. I'd like to be a little bit more gracious and kind. I'd like to have a heart for those who are in need. I'd like to more consistently win my battle with sin in my own life. I would like that. What's the ticket for you and me to be a doer of the word? I'm convinced of this. The ticket for you and me to be a doer of the word is to focus on the one who was called the word. Remember in John 1, the very beginning of that book, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. You see, Jesus was one that controlled his tongue. He watched what he said. His talk was gracious, it was kind. And yet when he went to the cross, he suffered the silent treatment from the Father in order to empower us in such a way that our words might be edifying, that they might be demeaning, not, not rather than demeaning, as we traverse our way through life. Uh, Jesus' life was also filled with acts of service. He did all kinds of wonderful things, healed people, comforted people, those people who were rejected by the, the norm of society, he embraced, he He was always doing acts of service. He comforted hurting people, and yet when he hung on the cross, he was comforted by no one. He went solo, all by himself, in order to serve our deepest needs for salvation and for community itself. And then one more thought. Jesus was absolutely pure and unstained by the world. And yet when he was on the cross, he absorbed the blight of your sin, my sin. 
in order that we could become a doer of the word, in order that we, being washed by the blood of the divine word, can begin to function in a way that James wants. So James has a lot of things to say to us. It sounds a little bit of, a, of, of legalism. You know, not, it's not this at all. What James is, is, he keeps going back to the person of Christ. Christ is the one that modeled everything that he commands us to do. And if somehow we can continue to focus on the Savior, uh, the indifference toward people who are in need, uh, the use of our words with one another, uh, what we are in fact becoming will take place to the glory of God. So that's what James is talking about. Would you bow with me? I'll close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the plainness of Scripture in the sense that uh, we can understand what's being said and uh, discern your will. And uh, we don't have to go out in our own strength in order to pull it off. We thank you that as we look to the one who kept your will perfectly and who now empowers us, that we can do it without being legalistic, without wanting strokes, uh, without uh, care of whether or not we're noticed. Uh, those kinds of things really don't matter. You think about uh, the young person that's uh, hung up, uh, just on the fact that he or she doesn't feel very welcome or uh, into a group that desperately needs community. I, I pray, Father, that uh, we will see Christ and uh, embrace those who are just a little bit on the outside, both uh, youth and children and adults. We pray, Father, that uh, when people who our desperate uh, would uh, run into us that we can somehow encourage, encourage them and uh, build them up. Uh, sometimes we're so uh, focused on ourselves and um, uh, trying to make things a little bit better for us that we uh, just look past, look through other people that desperately want to be seen. And so thank you, Father. Um, the work you do in us is always gentle. It's always incremental. You cheer us on like the best father at a Little League game, cheering on a son or a daughter, Father. Um, you set the bar high. And uh, thank you for the spirit that works within us, uh, that encourages growth, cheers us on. So happy for us. Pray that we might continually be that kind of people. In Christ's name, amen.